right, so we are going to go ahead and get started. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 tonight. I know that sounds like a lot, but I promise it's not. So essentially, over the next several weeks, we're going to be diving into the seven seals. Um, this, in this chapter, we see that there's a scroll introduced, like God point, like pulls a scroll out and presents it to John, and it has seven seals on it. And each time one of those seals is broken, something crazy happens. So we're going to be talking about that over the next few weeks. Tonight, we're just going to be talking about the beginning. Like It's just going to be where the scroll is introduced, where, and it, to, honestly, mostly tonight, we're going to be talking a lot about worship and what what true genuine worship of, of Jesus and God looks like. Um, and so this is kind of broken up into two sections. Chapter four is mostly about God, the father. Chapter five is mostly about the lamb, which is Christ. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it and then we will jump right into it. So chapter four, starting in verse one, it says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, or were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each, of, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them, with six wings and with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns down before the throne saying worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So this is a lot, and it seems like a lot to unpack, but what I want to point out first of all that what we're seeing here is, first of all, so the placement of, of the letters, the seven letters to the churches we've been going through. So we see before those letters start, in chapter one, we see this description of Jesus and who Jesus is. Jesus introduces the book of Revelation. Then now we're getting into this, and now it's just starting to talk about God the Father and then Jesus again. Like in between this is when we see the seven the, the seven letters to the seven churches. Okay, so this is important because this shows us that he was trying, like Jesus was trying to convey through John, like, hey, everything that everything I'm telling you guys, like I'm I'm holding all of this in my hands. Like you need to see beginning and end. This is all about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about who you are, what you've done. This is all about me. And everything has to do ultimately with my glory. And so then, you know, verses one and two here kind of introduce us into this next vision that John has. And from the language here, it seems to imply this takes place right after the letters to the seven churches. Okay, so for those of you guys who haven't been here, essentially the past few weeks we've been talking about the seven churches. And what we see here is that 
John, like John has been writing these seven letters to the seven churches. Like Jesus has been speaking to him. John's writing it down, and he's he's giving these letters to these churches. And now, right after this takes place, suddenly he gets this crazy vision. Like he looks up, this door's open in the heavens. This kind of represents him, you know, seeing like having this vision open to him, and then he starts seeing all this crazy stuff again, just like he did in chapter one. All of this is meant to show us who God is and who Christ is, and it's supposed to introduce everything else that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Um, and he hears the same voice that spoke to him in chapter 1. So this shows us that this is Christ that is speaking to him directly. We know it from chapter 1 that it's Jesus who's talking to him. We know um, that Jesus is not only just describing these visions, but that John is actually seeing these things happen, which is crazy. Like Most of us, I think, if this happened to us, we would think that we were going insane. But John, instead, he listens to what Christ says, and he says, okay, I'm going to write this stuff down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take note of this. I'm going to send this out to the churches so that everyone can hear what's happening here. Um, and John, I think a lot of us, again, if we suddenly started seeing this, it, it would be hard for us to wrap around our heads what's happening here. And all the crazy stuff that John is describing here and all the stuff he's about to describe. But the thing is, is that John doesn't see any of this as random. Okay, We talked about this before, but John is familiar with the scriptures. Okay, He's read the Old Testament. He knows what's happening here. And he's seen all of this before because this isn't the first time that we see any of this described. This is all described in Ezekiel 1 and Daniel chapter 6. If you go back and read those, you're going to see a lot of the same language used, same kind of story, same visions happening. So John's like, wait, I've heard this before. I know what, what's happening in front of me. I've read about this in Ezekiel. I've read about this in Daniel. Like I've read about the prophets who have seen these things already. And so essentially he knows that what he is seeing is the completed version of that. He's seeing, seeing the vision that's been completed on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ. To make this real simple, this is essentially John seeing things that have already happened, but now with more context. So when we read this letter, when we read all the crazy visions and stuff that are happening, and we start getting into all, all this kind of stuff, then we need to understand, like, hey, this is, this is something that the audience of Revelation, like, they knew, they were familiar with these scriptures, they knew this book, and when this was described to them, they were like, oh, this is just context for the things that we've already heard about in scripture. Like, this is just context for the things that we already know. And now we can understand what Ezekiel was talking about, what Daniel was talking about, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, because we know that he is good and that he lives and that he stands in eternity. And so verse one introduces us to all this. Verse two shows us that once again, he's taken up in the spirit. Think about this, just like what happened to the apostles at Pentecost. Like, like immediately, like the Holy Spirit descends, he's taken up in the spirit and like starts and all this crazy stuff starts happening. That's exactly how we should picture this. And then suddenly he sees the single greatest thing that anyone could possibly see. He sees the God God the Father on the throne. He sees the creator of all things. He's face to face with the one who created him. And he goes on to describe what he looked like in verse 3. So in verse 3, he, he's talking about this. And he's, he's kind of getting into this. And so the, this voice has already said to him, hey, come in, I'll show you these things. And so in verse 3, he says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a, the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, this is almost exactly how we see this described in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. But what we need to, the important thing to see here is that 
Just like Ezekiel and Isaiah before him, John avoids using precise language to describe the father. Like he's not saying, oh, well, his face looked like this and he was wearing this and he was doing this. And he does all this on purpose. Because just as Ezekiel and Isaiah understood, human words cannot describe the glory of God. Human words cannot describe the glory of God. He's trying to show them this. He's trying to say, hey, you need to see like when, when you think about God, you're not supposed to think about what he looks like. You're supposed to think about his glory and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and all the good things about God. You're supposed to think about who he is, not what he looks like. And then again, we talked about this before, but please don't forget that all this is symbolism. Like everything he's seeing here, we're not meant to actually picture all these rubies and jewels and all this stuff around the throne. We're just, it's meant to symbolize who God is. So when I was a kid, I had this children's Bible that, you know, um, I'd read it a lot, like before I went to bed or whatever. And in this passage, I, re- I remember this so vividly because I was so fascinated by this. In this passage, in that children's Bible, there's this picture like next to it. And it literally was like this picture of like this outline of a man. And there were all these like jewels and stuff. And there was just this blinding light coming off him. Like you couldn't see what he looked like, but you could see like the outline of him. And it's funny because I'm sure the editors of that children's Bible like had great intentions in doing that, but that's the takeaway from this verse is not what we're supposed to picture when we look at God. The whole point of John using this kind of language to describe God is that language cannot describe him and nothing in our vocabulary could help us to comprehend his glory and his goodness. Instead of trying to picture him as this, this rainbow dude with light coming off of him, we need to understand that God used these symbols to show his glory. The jewels and the colors are not meant to be interpreted literally, but to signify the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God and who he is. Verse 3 also specifically references Ezekiel 128, where Ezekiel is seeing these visions happen. And it says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day rain. So it's a really dumb way of saying rainbow. So like a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Almost exactly the same thing that happens to John here. Then we get into the the presence of the 24 thrones um, and elders, which likely represents the unity of God's people. You know, there's 12 tribes of of Israel. There's 12 apostles. If you add that, you get 24. So this is essentially bringing all of God's people from all time together in one place. This This is his way of connecting the church, like God's people of old and his people now. Then the thunder and lightning that we see in verse 5, this calls back to Exodus 19.16, where it says, On the morning of the third day, there was there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So apparently thunder and lightning tend to accompany God when we see him appearing in Scripture. Also the seven torches, it says that they represent the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that there's seven different Holy Spirits. All this means is that you know, seven is used as a number of completion in Revelation. We're going to see it over and over again. So this is just saying like, hey, the Holy Spirit is complete and perfect, and it's showing his deity. It's showing, hey, this is this is the spirit of God that we're talking about, the spirit of God that's on the throne. Then we get to verse six, and we see the appearance of these, these weird and wild creatures. Once again, for us, this would be super strange. Like if we're if we're standing there and suddenly we start seeing these creatures, like I know I would freak out about this. But for John, he had already heard about these creatures before. He already knew who this was because these creatures are mentioned in Isaiah 6, 2, and 3, and Ezekiel 1, 10, and 18. These have been described before as angels in the Old Testament. 
And these specifically are angels who we're going to see later are going to summon the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we often hear about. Um, the angels mentioned in Isaiah 6 specifically are cherubim, while the angels mentioned in Ezekiel 1 are seraphim. These are m- more likely seraphim. They don't match exactly either of these appearances, but this is like these are just described as angels in other places in the Old Testament. Um, and then, so, then we get into this, um, the whole point of this is for us to understand that, like, these crazy creatures that are so hard for us to even wrap our head around, like, this whole idea of this creature with all these eyes and the wings and all this stuff, like, it's hard for us to even imagine that. Even those creatures bow before God and worship him. Creatures so much more vast than we could possibly understand. Angels that are these supposedly these much higher beings, even they bow before God and worship Him, and that's all they do. And so that's meant to show us the amazing power and glory of God. Then we get into the Sea of Glass, which is a reference to both Exodus 24.10, where God is referred to as walking on ground that appears to be made of jewels, and Ezekiel 1, 22 and 26, which also references this, this vast expanse that appears before the throne that kind of represents, it kind of looks like jewels. Then we get into the really like the meat of this passage, this important part here where it starts talking specifically about the worship of God. See, verses 8 through 11 are meant to show us the incredible power and glory of God. Just like I said before, these creatures that we can hardly picture would bow down and worship him. The very description given of God here caused John to worship him. It would cause the early readers to worship him. And this description given to us of God should cause us to worship him. It should evoke feelings of awe in us. He is so glorious that he cannot be described using human words. He's so far above our understanding and comprehension. That is the God that we serve. He is unknowable and yet makes himself known to us. These lowly creatures who are We're full of sin and unrighteousness, and yet he loves us enough to say, hey, you can know me. You can stand before me as righteous because of what Christ has done. That's the God that we serve, this God who is so far beyond our understanding and yet takes the time to know us individually. Essentially, so we get two practical things from this passage here. The first is our need to know and understand Scripture. We need to know and understand Scripture. See, John is able to understand these visions, these crazy things that are happening. Not because he, like, yes, he's having some special revelation from God, but more importantly, he's able to understand them because he's seen them before. Everything that's happening in front of him, he's like, wait, I've heard about this before. It's familiar to him. The early churchgoers who read these visions would have had a similar reaction. They would have been like, whoa, wait, this isn't the first time we've heard about any of this before. We, however, have to decipher these passages because we often aren't familiar with what came before them. Like most of us don't spend our free time reading Ezekiel and Isaiah. So when we get to passages like this, we're like, what's going on? Like, what are, what, what are these things? But these guys were so familiar with Scripture, they were like, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about here. We've seen this before. This is the fulfillment of that. Like, this is the same thing as that, but with more context. Like, now we know what all of this is talking about because now we have Christ. But not only do we need to understand Scripture to interpret Scripture, we need to understand Scripture to interpret the world around us. When the early Christians faced intense suffering and persecution, they were able to look back to the Scriptures to understand that Not only was that to be expected, 
but it was all for the glory of God. And anytime we encounter suffering or things go wrong in our life or things are bad, we're, we should be able to look at our life situations and the circumstances in our life and see where the glory of God is at play and where these things are ultimately for our good. We need to be able to look at everything in our life through the lens of Scripture and understand where we've seen this before in Scripture because nothing is new. It's all been laid out for us already. The second thing that shows us is what happens when we see God as He is. The way that we are supposed to see Him, free from the influence of the world. See, here we have this picture of God that is pure, that isn't dulled or affected by the world around us. It's not affected by any of the things happening. It's not marred by sin. It's a pure picture of God. Like John is seeing God in heaven. The door of heaven has been opened. He's seeing him as he is meant to be seen. See, when the elders and creatures encounter God for who he is, their only response is to fall to him in worship. Because that is the only proper response. What we see in this passage is that God deserves our worship because of who he is. God deserves our worship because of who he is. That's what makes this passage so great, is that we see that God, we're not worshiping God just, just because of he's done some good things for us, because he saved us, because of any of that. He would deserve our worship even if it wasn't for that. In fact, he deserves our worship because he created us. That's what makes our sin so much worse. That's what makes the things that we've done to rebel against him so much worse. And that's what makes the fact that he loves us anyway so much greater. God deserves our worship because of who he is, because he is God. So then we get into chapter 5. And the first thing I want to say about chapter 5 is that the first five verses here show us the gospel. The first five verses show us the gospel. That's what makes this part so important for us, is that when we get into chapter 5, this chapter is specifically about Christ and who he is. It's about the Lamb of God. <clears throat> In these first five verses here, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So this is a scroll we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Okay, so this is the introduction of the scroll with the seven seals. We see this here. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Right here we see the gospel laid out for us so perfectly. It starts by introducing us to God and who he is and the fact that he is so worthy of our worship. But then immediately, God presents something to us, and we realize how unworthy we are. Because of our sin, because of the shame, because of what we've done, we, we aren't good enough to open this, to, to take what He has given us, what He's offered to us, what He's shown us. We understand who God is, how good He is, and how deserving He is of our worship, and then we realize how much we've missed the mark. No one was worthy to open the scroll, just like none of us are worthy of God's grace. It wasn't until John realized the state of the world, and that if the and and that the scroll couldn't be opened, that he was presented with the solution. 
And this is what's great about this is that we need chapter four to understand chapter five because when we read chapter four, we see that the scroll isn't important because of what's in it. He doesn't know what's in it yet. It's still, it's sealed with seven seals. Like he, there's no way he could have seen it. The reason he knows that this scroll is so important that he weeps when it can't be opened is because of the one who presented it to him. The scroll is so infinite in worth because the one because of the infinite worth of the one who presents it, like God, the creator of all things, presents the scroll. And he's like, that has to be so important because God himself is holding it. And yet nobody here is worthy to open it. Of course he's weeping. But then he's presented, as soon as he realizes the state of the world, the state of the world that nobody could open the scroll, he is presented with the solution by one of the elders. One of the elders who comes up to him and says, hey, don't, don't weep anymore. Hope is here. The solution is that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Just like how Jesus is worthy of God's grace and therefore can grant it to us. All of this shows us the gospel laid out for us right here in Revelation. Yeah, there's a lot of weird, confusing language here, but the, the heart of this is the gospel, is the truth of who God is and who Christ is and who we are because of that and who we can be in them. It just makes it so much greater what he's done for us, and we know who he is. The scroll is also a reference to Ezekiel 2.9, where Ezekiel is having these visions, and he looks and he says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Later on in Revelation, we're going to see that, that John is asked to eat this scroll, which is super weird, but we, Ezekiel is asked the same exact thing. Right after he's presented the scroll, he's like, hey, eat the scroll, which... I'm going to be honest, if that was me, I'd be like, I'm not going to eat the scroll. But he just doesn't have a question. He eats the scroll. He just eats the whole thing. The point is, is that that's supposed to signify actually ingesting the message and like taking it in and understanding it. So right now, John hasn't even been told what's on the scroll, but he knows how important it is. And so we see that only Jesus is worthy to open it. And then look, look at the description of Jesus here. So starting in verse 6, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out over all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, as they were reading this for the first time, I'm sure the Christians of that day were like blown away by the connections here. But what I love about this is the description of Jesus here. I just want to remind you once again, okay, we're not supposed to see this as literal. Like Jesus is not literally meant to be seen as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. That's weird. But what we're supposed to see is the significance of this. The lamb was slain and yet was standing in victory, was standing in triumph. Like he was standing as though he had been killed and yet he was standing. He had risen from the grave. The seven horns represent the perfect and immense power of Christ. He can conquer any obstacle. Nothing can stand in his way. The seven eyes, it says here that they are the Holy Spirit. And this describes Jesus' ability to know and see all things by the power of the Spirit. Nothing and no one can hide from him. He sees our hearts. He knows our intentions. And then we get to verses 8 through 10, which is a parallel to, to the verses that we see in the last chapter. See, this is just another description of worship. And this is the affirmation of the deity of Christ. This is showing that Jesus is just as worthy of worship as God. 
See, in verses 8 through 10, it says, it says, And when he had taken a scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I love the detail here. You know, first we see this this affirmation of the deity of Christ, but also I want to point out the detail here of the incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. This tells us that our prayers are heard by Christ and presented to the Father. Our prayers are heard by Christ and presented to the Father. This is so important because this is the reminder for us that Christ is our intermediary. We no longer need a priest because he is our great high priest. This is the reminder that Christ hears our prayers. They're presented to him. And he presents them to the Father. like they, He's hearing our prayers and he's able to bring them to the Father and say, hey, this is what your people are asking for. So the early Christians who were reading this, who were suffering and enduring persecution, for them, this is the reminder, God is hearing what we're going through. When we're crying out for help, he hears that. Our prayers do not go unanswered. They don't go unheard. And then... I love this because we see the parallels between the worship of, fa- of the Father and the worship of the Lamb. They're both being praised as worthy, but they're also praised for why they are worthy. See, God the Father is worthy of our praise because He created all things. That's why God is worthy of our praise, because He created all things. Then we see that the Lamb, Jesus, is worthy of our praise because He died for us. And then He resurrected from the grave. Both of them have earned our worship and praise. Both of them are deserving of our praise and our worship and all the honor and glory that we can bring. They've both shown us that they are worthy of it. This all culminates into the end of this passage, which kind of morphs us into praise for both of them. Like Each of them has had their own separate praise, and now, and now the elders and the angels and all of them, they're praising both of them. And I love this because it says, starting in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What I love about this is that this praise, one, this is what our praises should look like, but two, it shows us this is a beautiful look into what our eventual reality will be. In Philippians 2, 9-11, through Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. This is talking about Jesus. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is going to be our reality one day. It's what we were all created to do. When we see God as He is, we will worship Him as we were created to do. 
we're presented with this image of God and Christ and who they are and who they are to us, we are going to worship them. And one day that's going to be the reality for all of creation. So every creation is going to be subjected to judgment. Every, every living being, every person who has died, who lives, everyone is going to be subjected to the judgment of Christ. But we can stand in hope knowing that that is our opportunity to praise him for eternity. When we understand the eternal worth of both God the Father and God the Son, we will worship them both as they rightfully deserve. With everything that is in us, with all that we can give, with our time, with our energy, with, with our money and our resources, with everything, we will worship Him because He is worthy of it. We will worship God because He is worthy of it. We will worship God the Father and God the Son because they are both deserving of our praise. And so as we kind of close out and we go into the questions and everything. Just think about the images of worship that we see here, what, what it looks like to be standing in heaven in front of God and how, how creatures and people that we don't understand stand before him and worship him all day. And that is the greatest reality that we can hope for, to understand that the God that is that righteous and that worship and that worthy of honor and praise and glory would still love us, would still be a part of our lives. It's the best news that we could possibly get. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and for the truths that are found here. God, even at times when this book is long and complicated and hard to understand, we can still find the simple truths that are in here. It still tells us how good you are, how righteous you are, how holy you are, but it also tells us how much you love us. We see the gospel in every page of this book. God, I thank you for your truth. That we are all able to live by the words in this book, by the truth that you have bestowed upon us. God, I thank you so much that that we're able to gather here around your word like this and worship you and and talk about you and learn from your word and be, be shaped by it. God, I thank you so much for who you are, what you've done in our lives. And that you would send your only son to die on a cross and then rise from the grave for our sins. God, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. And help us to worship you as you deserve. Pray all of this in the holy and precious name of Christ. Amen.